Hi, you're listening to Square Two, a podcast building upon Square One, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here you will find insightful, restored Church of Jesus Christ thought concerning the important issues of the world today. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Today's episode features an article entitled, One Woman's Thoughts on Plural Marriage, by Kathy Bentz, published in Square Two, Volume 12, Number One, and read by Bethany Canny. A 2002 Mormon ad in the New Era magazine showed an ice cream sundae with a cockroach in the ice cream. The caption read, it's great, except for the bad parts. Although a commentary on questionable media, I also saw it as a commentary on the gospel, because the beautiful ice cream sundae of the plan of happiness held for me one depressing cockroach-like thought. Polygamy was part of God's eternal plan. When I joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1971 at age 17, I knew nothing of its teachings on polygamy, or as the church called it, plural marriage. Later, as a BYU student, I was told that this concept, completely foreign to me at the time, had been a way for men to financially care for widows in the early church. That left me confused, but the rude awakening came after I was married and understood the eternal implications of this doctrine. Today, as a grandmother, I still have not outgrown my aversion to these teachings, and with more historical details available on the internet, I do not expect to. While raising my children, I never burdened them with my concern. But now my daughters question this concept, and I worry about how my eight young granddaughters will feel when this eternal prospect confronts them someday. Over the years, I have tried to avoid the topic of polygamy by putting it on a shelf, as priesthood leaders often advise. Unfortunately, this advice was never very useful. The topic would jump off the shelf when it was brought up in occasional church meetings, in my readings, or as I attended the temple. I was reminded that plural marriage was part of my faith, and that I should believe this principle somehow fit into God's plan. Recent changes in the temple ceremonies might lessen that reminder, but my underlying concern remains. Plural marriage is still part of my faith. Despite my frustrations, I have found comfort in a few writings by church members that also question this doctrine. When I was a young mother, I was given Eugene England's paper, Fidelity, Polygamy, and Celestial Marriage. It seemed logical, and I hoped it was true. Several years ago, I read Valerie Hudson Castler's explanation of polygamy in her book, Women in Eternity, Women in Zion. Although Section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants was still painful, and it troubled me that this belief had played out in the early church, Castler provided clear reasoning to refute that plural marriage would be eternal. Yet it left me questioning why the temple and our church leaders were not providing that same assurance. Then, reading Carolyn Pearson's book, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, confirmed something I had long suspected. This practice had been damaging to many women, and this confusing teaching continues to be emotionally damaged to many women today. It fueled my doubt that God ever endorsed it. The good news of the Savior, as taught in the church, is my comfort and hope, and I will not throw the baby, my faith in the church, out with the polygamy bathwater. Throughout my years of faithful membership, whenever plural marriage was defended, whether through a church-sanctioned explanation or through a member-invented speculation, I never felt convinced. This paper, with supportive notes from mainly church sites, is mostly my response to the defense of this doctrine. There are women who appear to be at peace with this principle. Unfortunately, I am not one of them, nor would I presume to speak for them. 
So my thoughts alone are expressed along with my interpretation of the insights of others. 1. Are men superior and women inferior? In her book, Eve and the Choice Made in the Garden of Eden, Beverly Campbell asserts that the source for men being considered superior to women comes from the negative characterizations of the first woman, Eve. Contrary to the world's view of Eve, our unique understanding of her noble choice in the garden teaches we are not inferior to men. Unfortunately, though, our teachings on plural marriage obliterate the progress that Eve's daughters make with their collective self-esteem, and instead, men's superiority and women's inferiority is multiplied. Polygamy is a statement of inequality. The message from men to women is, I am to be the unique object of your affection, but you are to be one of many objects of my affection. You are selfish if you are not willing to share me with other women. You are to be intimate and loyal to me only, whereas my desire to have multiple partners is righteous and will be my reward in the eternities. Good men would never use this belief to feel superior or to rule over women. Nevertheless, the principle invites this very thought. Our beliefs link to our attitudes and actions, and with these teachings, confused men have justified their affairs and pornography habits, while evil men have debased and harmed women and young girls. To rub salt in the wound, it is usually men, the gender saddled with negative male stereotypes that are further perpetrated by sanctioning polygamy, who provide the explanation for and defense of this principle. While it is implied that men and women in the highest kingdom will have different roles throughout eternity, we are taught that those who dwell in God's presence will be made equal in power, might, and dominion. In other words, we may not be the same, but we will rule as equals. In contrast, Doctrine and Covenants 132, the current temple sealing policies, and the actual plural marriage practiced by the early saints reveal women are considered peripheral beings, helping a man who is central to build up his kingdoms. With eternal plural marriage requiring more females to equal a male, women are not equal in power, might, and dominion. The numbers do not add up. 2. Does God want his name associated with this seldom-discussed teaching? I resent that we do our best to hide the concept of polygamy from unsuspecting investigators. After all, I was one of them. The Church's plural marriage history is more openly covered today on churchofjesuschrist.org and in supplemental materials, but the eternal nature of plural marriage is not covered in neither perspective, the historical nor the eternal, is part of the missionary lessons or discussed in church meetings, which is reasonable because members come to church to be inspired. For many, this is not an inspiring topic. When my husband and I were teaching the Gospel Principles class in our ward, a recently baptized young man raised his hand and began quoting word for word some scriptures he had discovered and apparently memorized in the Doctrine and Covenants. He then asked if men in the church are justified, as the scripture stated, in having many wives. This young man seemed pleased with his new discovery. Still, it often comes as an unpleasant shock when a church member stumbles across Doctrine and Covenants 132 or learns of the current temple sealing practice allowing a living man, but not a living woman, to be sealed to multiple partners. Rather than hide this teaching and practice, perhaps we should ask if God wants his name associated with it at all. Dennis Prager, a Jewish scholar and talk show host, has a logical view of the third commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Of the Ten Commandments, only this one carries the severe penalty 
that whosoever breaks it will not be held blameless. Prager clarifies that rather than just slipping up with a swear word, taking God's name in vain refers to doing evil in his name, something God finds especially reprehensible because it turns others away from him. In his book, The Rationale Bible, Exodus, Prager explains slavery based on kidnapping was banned in the Torah, but other forms such as slavery based on indentured servitude was tolerated, even though it was not an ideal lifestyle. Similarly, he says, while the Torah allowed polygamy, its ideal is monogamy, which is why every instance of polygamy described in the Torah is described in a negative way. And the Torah narrative is as important a source of values as is Torah law. It seems God patiently tolerated some ancient cultural norms, including polygamy and slavery. However, his toleration does not mean approval and does not make these practices part of his eternal plan. If both polygamy and slavery were tolerated anciently, but are not approved today, will God hold the perpetrators of either guiltless? Is it acceptable that today we claim one of these practices, which turns some of his children away from him, as doctrine associated with his name? 3. Would an agency-denying principle be restored? For women, these twin relics of an ancient culture, polygamy and slavery, seem to go hand in hand. While women in Old Testament times were not alone in being slaves, their role as property uniquely included sometimes being given or taken as plural wives, such as in the case of Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. The scripture in Genesis 16, 1-3 tells us that Sarah gave her maid Hagar to Abraham to wife. This makes sense in the context of the Old Testament. Hagar was a woman, she was property, and her freedom to choose was irrelevant. That is how things were in those days. The related scripture recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 132 verse 34 says, God commanded Abraham and Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife. And why did she do it? Because this was the law, and from Hagar sprang many people. This, therefore, was fulfilling, among other things, the promises. From this version of the story, the same thing happened. Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to wife, but now God commanded it and it fulfilled promises. Missing from this scripture is any explanation of Hagar's opinion on becoming a second wife, which was understandably unimportant in Old Testament times. But what about in Doctrine and Covenants times? Unlike the Old Testament version of Hagar's story, the Doctrine and Covenants version was being told in the United States when polygamy and slavery, at least for white women, were not part of the culture. Now this story becomes an example for today's restored church, which has a central teaching of God-given agency, a gift that is extended to women. Abraham's relationship with Hagar is viewed by some Christian and Jewish faiths as Sarah's idea and not in accord with God's moral law. On the other hand, our version claims God restored and commanded this disruption to family life without giving instructions on how it should be implemented, but continues to leave Hagar's agency out of the restored modern-day polygamy equation. Why does this Hagar example which became the basis for latter-day plural marriage, involve a slave with no right to express her opinion. We are often reminded the strong early church history women chose plural marriage. They did, and they lived at a time when they had more privileges than Hagar. But they still did not have the nearly equal status women enjoy today. Also, they were under ecclesiastical and social pressure to support this principle, fearing a God who commanded polygamy and fearing his punishment if they opposed it. So like Hagar, were these women really allowed the freedom to choose? Did the example of Hagar, who had little say in this matter, apply to these latter-day women also? 
While this is not the church's message today, Doctrine and Covenants 132 verse 34, recorded in Latter-day Scripture for our day, suggests God commands that women be given as wives, treated like property, and their freedom to choose is insignificant. In fact, some fundamentalist sects justify this exact treatment of women using this verse and others from Doctrine and Covenants 132. I believe in restored truths, but I am not supportive of a restored, agency-denying principle, not the biblical practice of plural marriage any more than I would be of the biblical practice of slavery. 4. The husband-wife-God relationship suffers. My husband does his best to make me feel special and unique in his eyes, something every woman wants. In the hope of eternal marriage, we covenant in the temple with God and our spouse. Yet sadly, this eternal hope involves something that takes away a woman's dream of being her husband's unique and only companion. Although the early saints may not have always had the luxury of romantic love, the universal desire for a woman to be the only wife to a husband could not be put aside. Reading Doctrine and Covenants 132 is a painful experience because poor Emma, along with wives and concubines in general, seems to be less than human, more like property, and certainly not special in her husband's eyes. To make matters worse, she is threatened with destruction if she does not accept her role as property and sacrifice her monogamous relationship with her husband. This not only can harm a woman's relationship with her husband, but also her relationship with God. It is disturbing to think of the pressure that would compel older women to give up their monogamous relationships with their husbands as they watched them marry younger women who were at the beginning of their childbearing years. It is especially uncomfortable to think of the persuasion required to cause naive young girls who had the possibility of marriage still ahead to forgo their prospects of monogamy in order to live polygamy. 5. Women's identities and destinies are muddled. Among the concepts found in Doctrine and Covenants 132 that challenge my female self-esteem, the instructions involving the first wife having a say in becoming part of a polygamous relationship are at the top of the list. The section says, If any man espouse a virgin and desire to espouse another, and the first give her consent, then he cannot commit adultery, for they are given unto him. Considering the previously mentioned pressures on the early saints to live this principle, was the first wife freely giving consent or rather pressed into doing so? Could one who is subordinate without legally independent status give true consent? In reality, these questions are insignificant. Although it may have been polite to ask the first wife's permission, her consent is of no consequence because later in the same section it states if she does not accept this law and give her consent, she will be destroyed and her husband will be able to take another wife anyway. Thankfully, we are not told by today's prophets to live this principle. However, based on our teachings and with an eternal point of view, we are living it. It is practiced in our day by the men who remarry and are sealed for eternity to additional wives after the death or divorce of their first wife something a living wife cannot do upon the death or divorce of her husband. In the case of death, there is no need to obtain the consent of the first wife before the husband is sealed to additional wives. The first wife's agency is irrelevant. Since seeking the first wife's consent could get messy, perhaps it is better that she not be asked. After all, can you imagine a husband asking his dying wife if she will allow him to be sealed eternally to another wife after she passes? Fortunately, something that hurtful is not likely to happen. What is more likely is for couples who know of this teaching to have a conversation prior to or early in their marriage, and for the wife to ask that her husband never be sealed to a second wife. 
This conversation can go two ways. The husband might assure his wife he will follow her wishes and never take a second wife. Or perhaps, feeling he must be honest, he will say he can't be certain because it might be required of him to take additional wives. My husband chose the former option, which, in my opinion, is the wiser choice because it keeps the wife happy. He knows that if I die first, he would be free to remarry, but that I do not want him to be sealed to another woman. He has agreed to this despite Doctrine and Covenants 132, which states my permission is not required. Even though I might be viewed as selfish because of my demand, I prefer my children not be burdened by thoughts of eternal plural wives for their father. Before a divorced man is sealed to another wife, he is usually required to obtain the consent of the first wife, and also the permission of the first presidency. However, my daughter's consent was not requested before her ex-husband was sealed to a second wife. She had been sealed in the temple and then abandoned by her husband a year later, with divorce papers arriving the next day. Even though he left her, she was left to cancel the sealing, something she needed for her peace of mind and would also need if she ever wanted to be sealed in the temple again. Despite the strong objections of her state president, she insisted on the cancellation of the sealing. This long, arduous procedure required her ex-husband's permission, which did not come quickly. During the process, she learned that shortly after her divorce was final, he had been sealed in the temple to another wife. In effect, my daughter had not only remained sealed to her ex-husband for some time after the divorce, but without her knowledge or consent, she had also been sealed to his new wife. All of this causes me to wonder why God's plan would place this added stress on a couple, create an unequal voice in their relationship, teach them that loyalty in their marriage will be one-sided, and cause them to have conversations about additional wives in the hereafter. I wonder why his plan would place this added stress on the woman in particular. That is, demonstrate that her freedom to choose in this matter is meaningless, imply she is selfish for desiring that a spouse be loyal to only her and allow her to imagine that the highest heavenly home will be, for her, less heavenly. Elder Tad Collister said, quote, If one does not correctly understand his divine identity, then he will never correctly understand his divine destiny. They are, in truth, inseparable partners. End quote. This muddled principle of plural marriage that cannot be adequately explained touches on both the woman's identity and her destiny, resulting in a less-than-ideal understanding of either. Six. The Church separates itself from other churches obeying Doctrine and Covenants 132. While many parts of the Gospel's restoration, such as scriptures other than the Bible, separated the early saints from their surrounding communities, the defense often given for their polygamous lifestyle is that it helped create and strengthen a sense of cohesion and group identification among Latter-day Saints. Church members came to see themselves as a peculiar people, covenant-bound to carry out the commands of God despite outside opposition. The goal was accomplished, and the early saints saw themselves and were seen by others as a peculiar people, and when the church is linked to this lifestyle today, we are also seen as peculiar. More than just peculiar, this practice, that likely seemed immoral and cruel to women by the majority of the saints' neighbors, would have been abhorrent in the 19th century. There could never be a justification for violence against the early saints, but we can understand members of a community wanting to separate themselves from those living this practice because clearly the church in our day does just that. Unlike the recent changes allowing children of LGBT parents to be baptized with an understanding of the doctrine that will be taught, children of polygamist families cannot receive ordinances until they are 18 and disavow polygamy. 
Our church makes a concerted effort to separate itself from present-day polygamous sects, many of which share our early history and scriptures, but have continued obeying the marriage commandment described in Doctrine and Covenants 132. 7. Is this abominable whoredom occasionally commanded? As an early morning seminary teacher, I was taught that the context and content of the scriptures will help us discover gospel truths. Fortunately, the Book of Mormon teaches and clarifies many of the truths that were distorted or removed from the Bible, and I believe Jacob too is no exception. In that Book of Mormon chapter, Jacob tells the brethren the Lord is unhappy because of their sins, the sin of pride, and the even grosser sin of having more than one wife. He tells them they are trying to excuse their whoredoms based on the things written concerning David and Solomon, who had many wives and concubines, which was abominable to the Lord. In fact, it was so abominable that in verse 25, the Lord says he led his people out of Jerusalem so that he could raise up a righteous branch from the fruit of the loins of Joseph. The Lord warns these people not to do like unto them of old, for there shall not any man among you have save it be one wife, and concubines he shall have none. Jacob continues to explain that the Lord requires his people to keep his commandments or the land will be cursed. And in verse 30, Jacob reports, For if I will, saith the Lord of hosts, raise up seed unto me, I will command my people. Otherwise they shall hearken unto these things. As a woman, I have wrestled with the explanation that raising up seed unto the Lord refers to his occasionally authorizing plural marriage, which, although seldom stated, will ultimately be eternal plural marriage. However, considering the context of Jacob chapter 2, verses 23 through 35, where Jacob describes the pain this practice has brought to families, the Lord's condemnation of it in no uncertain terms, and that one wife is his commandment, this interpretation means verse 30 clearly contradicts its surrounding verses. Could this verse mean the opposite of what has been taught? To be consistent, how could raise up a righteous branch in verse 25 be interpreted as a commandment to refrain from this abominable crime of polygamy that was practiced in Jerusalem, whereas raise up seed unto the Lord in verse 30 is interpreted as a commandment to embrace this abominable crime. How could the Lord then say in verse, verses 31 and 32 that he has seen the sorrow and heard the mourning of his daughters in Jerusalem because of their husband's wicked actions, and he will not suffer their cries against them, and then state that he will occasionally command his people to live what causes the sorrow, mourning, and suffering of his daughters. Using the context and content of these scriptures, it makes more sense that in the first part of verse 30, the Lord is repeating what he said in the preceding verses. If he is going to raise up seed, he will command his people, and in other words, expect husbands to follow what he is commanding through his prophet Jacob, to have one wife only. Then, in the latter part of verse 30, the Lord is next introducing what he will say in subsequent verses. If the people are not his seed, or choose not to be of his seed, the men will hearken unto these things. They will hearken to David and Solomon's ideas, or the polygamous ways of old that will lead to their cursing and cause heartache for their wives and children. Thus, raising up seed unto the Lord, verse 30, and raising up a righteous branch, verse 25, both refer to following God's command to refrain from committing the whoredom of practicing polygamy an interpretation which allows verse 30 to validate the context and content of the surrounding verses. 8. The Church Has Yet to Fully Disavow Polygamy As a missionary in Panama in the 70s, I taught and baptized Panamanians of African descent and saw firsthand the struggle these members faced, thinking they were somehow less valiant in the premortal life and therefore not qualified for temple and priesthood blessings. 
These restrictions have been lifted, and the confusing doctrine and speculations that were previously given have been disavowed. Women troubled with the doctrine of plural marriage do not have the same good fortune, at least not yet. While we are advised by the Church to say we no longer practice plural marriage, our Temple Sealing Practices and Doctrine and Covenants 132 cause some women to worry it foreshadows what might be eternal. 9. The justifying speculations are found wanting. Increasing the number of children born in the Gospel Covenant is given as one reason for God to command members of the Church to practice polygamy and polygamous men in the early Church did have more than the average number of children. However, women in plural marriages gave birth to fewer children, so did it accomplish its purpose? Regardless, plural marriage likely resulted in lower church membership by repelling countless potential converts, and despite distancing itself from this principle, it remains the church's largest public affairs problem. Polygamy is similar to a Ponzi scheme. The first investors are paid with money invested by later investors. The first men investing in polygamy take multiple wives, including those much younger than themselves. But the generations of later investors have already contributed their potential wives, so the multiple wives scheme is doomed to collapse. To keep this Ponzi-like scheme afloat today, a large proportion of boys must be kicked out of religious sects who use Doctrine and Covenants 132 as the basis for their faith. With females as the funds, this principle may function like a Ponzi scheme on earth, but what about in the eternities? Among the more common speculations to justify eternal polygamy is that women are more righteous and will outnumber men in the highest kingdom, thus plural marriage will be necessary. But we are counseled against making final judgments about anyone's ultimate eternal destination, which I would assume includes the overall eternal destination of most women as compared to most men. Even more troubling is that these presumed lopsided celestial numbers suggest that an all-powerful, all-knowing God miscalculated the male-to-female ratio for his highest kingdom. Hence, plural marriage is necessary to solve his mistake. 10. Part of our history, our eternities, and perhaps our lives again. My devoted husband, our children, and now our grandchildren are among my greatest blessings. They are an earthly family, allowing me to imagine a heavenly family. Nevertheless, the cockroach in the Sunday reminds me that the family unit we enjoy in this life might bear little resemblance to what we could experience in the eternities with polygamy. When we talk about the eternities and the highest kingdom in the afterlife, we often use the following phrases, worlds without number, immensity of space, eternal lives. Since we use words like multiple and plural to describe wives, would men's wives be unending also? This seems to be what the early prophets, particularly Brigham Young, had in mind. Eternities aside, it is hard to forget the early church families who lived this principle, to forget the pain of Emma and other plural wives whose true feelings cannot be accurately documented because the practice was lived out mostly behind closed doors and unseen inside human souls. Doctrine and Covenants 132 verse 3 says, quote, All those who have this law revealed unto them must obey the same. End quote. Yet today, church members striving to obey what is commanded in the scripture are excommunicated. Plural marriage ended because statehood was denied Utah. But with same-sex marriage now the law of this land, polygamy's legalization may not be far behind. As a result of its foreseeable legalization and this mandate recorded in the scriptures, would church members, like the early saints, be asked to comply with Doctrine and Covenants 132 and live this law? A 2011 Square 2 post discussing this question concluded the church's answer would be no, but conceded that the membership is conflicted. Quote, 
It is the doctrinal issues surrounding polygamy that stir the LDS soul. For example, when the state of Utah passed its own law defining marriage as heterosexual, there was actually considerable debate about whether to define marriage as between one man and one woman, or as a man and a woman. So the Lord would not be in violation of Utah law if the practice of polygamy was once again commanded. It says something about the LDS mindset that the second formulation was the one ultimately adopted. It says the mindset is deeply conflicted. End quote. 11. God is not the author of injustice. While I cannot know the mind and will of God, the plural marriage principle goes contrary to what I have been taught about loving heavenly parents and their plan for their children. Because of the valuable gift of free agency, God permits injustice in the world that results from his children's choices, but God is not the author of injustice, and injustice is not part of his plan of happiness. Yet with plural marriage as part of the gospel, it appears God is the author not only of injustice, but also of an eternal injustice, which is the opposite of all other gospel principles that testify of his fairness and love. As I have tried to reconcile my understanding of a just God with this principle, I am left with additional questions. Here are a few. Would men be happy if this unequal relationship were reversed? If we include women in the golden role, whatsoever ye would that men or women should do to you, do ye even so to them? Would one woman married to one man not best fulfill this mandate? By marrying multiple women in the early church, men were less likely to stray outside of their multiple marriages. But did this teach them to control the natural man, or did it merely allow them to avoid the self-discipline of being faithful? Even if polygamy were part of God's eternal plan, and clearly I hope it is not, would he subject his children to this damaging doctrine that negatively impacts the most important relationship we share on earth, marriage? Joseph felt justified in taking wives without Emma's knowledge, and by his silence, God seems to condone these actions. Why? Statements from Joseph sometimes couple polygamy with adultery. So did women living in polygamy feel they were tolerating adultery? Whether or not Joseph was acting under God's command, Emma suffered repeatedly the same torment as having an unfaithful husband. She was the victim. That said, in the revelation Joseph received in Doctrine and Covenants 132, the Lord's tone is kind with Joseph and harsh with Emma. Why? All of this leads me to wonder if God cares less for Emma than Joseph, or generally less for his daughters than his sons. This, of course, cannot be true. But why does it feel true when this principle is described in Doctrine and Covenants 132 and other church materials, including on churchofjesuschrist.org? If a woman expresses her concern about this teaching today, she is often assured not everyone will be required to live plural marriage in the highest kingdom, implying she personally will not. If this also implies others will. In other words, a woman can be relieved this polygamy misfortune will not befall her, but will instead befall her sister-neighbor, a less-than-Christian perspective that does not engender faith in the justice of God's eternal plan. 12. Do these teachings bring members closer to God? The good news is the Church is more open about its plural marriage history, although not its eternal nature. The bad news is that those of us troubled by this issue have to encounter it more often. The early saints made significant contributions and were driven by faith in God, but since I think the plural marriage they practiced was morally misguided, I do better staying away from church sites that teach it was inspired. My relationship with God is stronger when I believe it was not. The Savior warns against declaring more or less and establishing it for his doctrine when it is not built upon his rock. So was this doctrine built upon his rock? 
From its beginning, I believe it has not met the promise described in the scriptures. It has not proven to be a good seed. It has not produced good fruit, nor has it been light that discernibly shows goodness. Some justify their faith in an eternal principle of plural marriage with scriptures that state we cannot comprehend what God comprehends. I use those same scriptures to justify my hope God does not approve of this teaching or practice, and thus does not consider it a doctrine or principle, but allowed it to infiltrate his church because he honors agency, or for other reasons I cannot comprehend. I have invested most of my life in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and as a result, my life has been blessed. Even so, I cannot accept that this part of our beliefs, which tears at my heart, testimony, and relationship with God, was of him, or that he wants me to turn off my brain and conscience to trust that it was. I have obviously spent too many years and too much time considering this topic, but throughout that time I have gained confidence in my common sense, or perhaps the Lord's Spirit, that has whispered to me that something is wrong with this polygamy picture. Conclusion My faith in the Atonement provides hope that if I am misunderstanding this concept, one that was not presented when I joined this church and has not been adequately explained since, my misunderstanding will be covered by our Savior's sacrifice. On the other hand, if this teaching is not of God, His justice and mercy will be needed for those who ignorantly perpetrated polygamy and for those who suffered as a result. Although this issue will eventually be resolved through the Atonement, resolving it now would end unnecessary confusion and stress. As a young missionary working with those of African descent who were denied priesthood and temple blessings, I never carefully considered their emotional and spiritual discomfort. It was not my problem. In a similar way, I suspect priesthood leaders, who hold the authority to resolve this part of an otherwise beautiful gospel, are not properly cognizant of the discomfort of many female members who contemplate and or believe in this plural marriage doctrine. For this reason, I have shared my struggle with my bishop and stake president, and thankfully both have made a sincere effort to understand my perspective. My hope is that someday soon these men in authority, along with other priesthood leaders of higher authority, will remember conversations with women and men with similar concerns and provide either clarity or a final repudiation of this teaching. And then, for me, the cockroach in the Sunday will be exterminated, and my granddaughters will not be forced to confront this eternal prospect. This has been a recording of One Woman's Thoughts on Plural Marriage by Kathy Bentz. Originally published in Square 2, Volume 12, Number 1, Spring of 2019. Read by Bethany Canny. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged. The journal and website are credited and it is used for non-commercial use. If you would like to read a printed version of this and other articles on Mormon thought, please visit square2.org. That's S-Q-U-A-R-E-T-W-O dot O-R-G. Thank you for listening.